Uh, do, I have a, do I have a screen? Yeah, there we go. The lampstand at Central. We're looking at the book of Revelation. And I'm calling this, this lesson the isness of God. And we'll, we'll define what I mean by that in a little while. We'll be reading verses 8 through 11. And actually, I'm going to read the very first part of verse 12 um, also. And, and let, let me go ahead and read that while, while we're thinking of that scripture and looking at it. Verse 8, chapter 1 of Revelation. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and, is, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that is ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in spirit, in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on the scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Pergamum Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. I recently, as many of you know, made a, made a tri- uh, trip to Turkey. As I was studying this last year, I, I was reading on the seven churches of Asia, and I mentioned it to Julia that I'd love to go there one day, and she said, go. And so I did. I landed in Izmir, Turkey, which is ancient Smyrna, rented a car and just drove to the, the different places. I didn't take a tour. I was by myself. Never been there before and had a great time. Uh, I could go to these different places and spend, I didn't have to go by someone else's schedule. I never ate lunch. I don't think I ate lunch a single day. I would go to one of these sites in the morning and just spend sometimes the whole day reading the scriptures at times and looking at the different areas and thinking about the, the passage that we have before. So I have two regrets on that trip. One is I didn't pick up a group of hitchhikers. I got lost. Well, I didn't get lost. I got on the wrong road. I, I knew exactly where I was, and I knew I was in the wrong place. And I came upon a, 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 a university. I saw a sign of a group of university, a university and saw a group of students on the side of the road. I thought they were waiting for a bus until their thumbs went out. And I was in the left lane. Cars pulled up, me, uh, up on the right lane. And I wanted to zoom over there and pick up three of them and just see what happens when you pick up three Turkish hitchhikers. And, uh, and I just couldn't, it was too much traffic and, and I couldn't turn, I was going to turn around, but there was a medium that I couldn't, the concrete wall, I couldn't turn around for miles. That's one regret. Second regret is that I didn't go to Patmos and it's not for not trying. I drove down from Ephesus down to Kush, uh, how, how do you pronounce this name? Kushashdasi, Kushashdasi, you you know, (laughs) that port city on the Aegean Sea. And I went to a uh, a travel agent and said, I want to go to Patmos. And he said, "Uh, well, here's your schedule. And because it was early in the season, it was low season, I would have to stay traveling uh, three or four days and I just didn't have the time. I didn't have the courage to call Julia and said, I've, I've extended my time four days. And so I had to avoid or miss this experience of going to the island of Patmos. But that's where we're going to 
visit today, and I'm not going to give you any history of the place. But we're going to look at the island of Patmos or be on the island of Patmos, a Greek island 40 miles or so off the coast of our present day Turkey. Now, as we have examined the first seven verses of Revelation, the stress of this book, the seven verses and the stress of this whole uh, book is this is a revelation from Jesus. It's not from John. It's from Jesus. John was the means by which he used. And it is from him and it's about him. As we read the scriptures here, it's about Jesus. The whole thing is about him. The center of the message is in Jesus. And we're going to keep repeating this so we don't forget it. So because it's so easy for us to get sidetracked, especially when we get into the sections where we're told some things that we should be doing and not do. And then we get centered in on ourselves and we forget the message is not about us, but it's about him. It's about Jesus. And the things that we do aren't an attempt of getting God's attention They're not an attempt of getting his mercy or his grace. He's already stated that the grace and mercy comes from grace and peace comes from God. And of course, his his mercy does. And so our work and what we do isn't centered in trying to some way get God's grace. In typical first century style, last week we looked at John wrote this letter. He introduced himself. He addressed the recipients. He greeted them. He issued a prayer. And that prayer ends in verse 7, and it's something of a poem, and it centers in the coming of Christ. I couldn't help but think as uh, Ed centered our thoughts of us going home. And there is that. I mean, obviously, the scripture talks about the prodigal son going home. There was a a, a definite uh, repentance there and of going, returning to God. But as you come to the book of Revelation, it isn't so much coming home. The same uh, story, we're in lockdown and things are not going well at all. And we get a phone call. And this will date me. It's from Bruce Willis. (laughs) Or Liam Neeson or whoever the, 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 the star is today. And he says, stay where you are. I'm coming to get you. That's the book of Revelation. We're in the midst of problems. We're in lockdown. We're in persecution. A lot of bad things are going on. And the phone call is this. Look, he's coming with the clouds. Stay where you are. Stay put. It's going to be okay. I'm coming to get you. And you see that all the way in chapter 22. He says it several times. At the end there, he says, look. I am coming. I'm coming. So we have that security. We have that that uh, comfort that he's coming. And he says here he's coming with the clouds. And this is an echo. I've heard the echo of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. You may hear other echoes. But here, just pulling these out, he says, see, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. There's a judgment against Egypt in Isaiah. Ezekiel says, for the day is near, and he repeats it, the day of the Lord is near, a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. There before me was one like the son of a man, like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And as you read these, these statements, the clouds, 
They represent judgment. That's the symbol of judgment. And it not only meant the second coming, that final judgment, but the judgments on the earth. Things are being judged on this earth right now. Things happen right now, but they're little J judgments. One day there's going to be a capital J judgment. And that's what he promises us. And so this letter is wrapped in the Trinity with Jesus at the center. With the encouragement that judgment is coming. That's, that, it should encourage Christians that judgment is coming. Things will be made right one day. And that's good news. Because every one of us, when something happens, we say, we say that's not fair. Why did that happen? And that's when we get the phone call. He says, stay where you are. It's okay. I'm coming. I'll make it right. Verse 8 is an interjection. It's a, it, God interrupts. <laughs> and that's okay. When God wants to interrupt, it's probably a good reason. John has stated this poem or this doxology in verse 7. He ended it with a, 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 a phrase, two phrases of praise. One was Greek, one was Hebrew. And he says, so shall it be, amen. And so if you missed it in one language, you got it in the other one. He says, so shall it be, this will happen. He will come, judgment will come. And so John is now ready to set the stage of what's, what happened to him. He's going to tell the story. And before he can do it, it almost sounds like God interrupts or God interjects. And he wants us to know something. He wants to emphasize something once again. He says, I am. I am speaks. John has already said that the I am spoke, that he sent grace and mercy from he who was and who is and was and is to come. And now he identifies himself further as the Alpha and the Omega. You might get upset with me that I throw out Greek every now and then. Well, the Bible does, too. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's Greek. All right. We get so used to those things that we don't even notice it anymore. But that's Greek. Uh, we would, a true translation would be something like I am the A and the Z. All right. That would be a better translation. But this is the literal. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. The first letter of the Greek alphabet. The last letter of the Greek al- alphabet. He begins it all. He is saying he ends it all. He started events. He will end them. He began creation. He will bring it all to an end in the future. It implies that he's not only the Alpha and the Omega, but he's every letter in between. Beta, Gamma, Delta, so on. (laughs) He's everything in between. And that's the emphasis of this book. The center here is on the, this is where I've got the title, the isness of God. God is, and this is an important point, all the way from, uh, from uh, Exodus, that he has always been with us. He always will be with us. He's with us presently. There's this continuous isness of God. And Jesus reminded that when he, right before he left, I put that in quote, left the earth. Matthew chapter 28, the very last words of Matthew says, and I, he says, surely or truly, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. And then he left. How is he with us always if he left? Well, he didn't leave. Physically, he left, but the spirit is with us right now. He wants to know. He wants to emphasize the certainty that God is in the middle of bad things. 
Because a lot of bad things are going on in the book of Revelation. When John wrote this, he's in prison right now. He's in a, under banishment. We'll see that in a moment. So he's in a bad way, and some Christians are even in a worse way physically. And God says, listen, I am the isness of God. And then he names himself the Almighty. And we, we, you know, we read these things so quickly, and we read them through the Scripture so many times it becomes just words. And we don't really know sometimes what these mean. I believe that this interruption here is from the Father. Some of your commentaries will say, well, maybe this might be Jesus speaking. And the reason is that later on, uh, Jesus does speak. The next words we hear we'll find are from Jesus. And so they say, well, this might be Jesus. But I think it's the Father, and I don't have a strong opinion on it. But the reason is this particular word is used nine times in Revelation and once in Second Corinthians. And it always refers to the Father. Clearly, except this time it, where it could or could not refer to him, might refer to the son. But I think it's the father interrupting, interjecting and reassuring Christians in the middle of trouble that I am. I am with you. I will always be with you. The word here is pentocrator. I mentioned that because if you read anything about the Greek Orthodox Church, they'll call They'll have a they have a symbol and you've probably all seen it. Christ of Pentocrator, and it's, the, it's Jesus kind of having a firm look because of the look of, of a judge. And around his head, not on top of his head is a halo, but there's a, there's a, I should have put a picture on, on there, but I failed to do so. Uh, a, a gold back halo behind him, and that's called Christ of Pentocrator. And so you might read that one day and go, oh, wow, Alan informed me. But it comes from two words. Pan, all, and Krator, prevailing one, the mighty one, the almighty one. So you get the why it's translated that way. But here's a really interesting thing. Yes, almighty, all prevailing one, all strength. That's true. But if you go to the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, there was a time that the Jews, they lost their ability as a nation to really read the Hebrew Bible. And so they had it translated to a different language. Guess which language? No. Greek. There you go. It's called the Septuagint. They didn't translate it to the English at that time. Guess why? Because there was no English. But they translated it to the Greek. And so there were certain words that they would, tra- they would use this Greek word to describe certain God words, certain descriptions of God, two in particular. And I, I believe you've probably heard one of them, maybe both. El Shaddai, you've heard that, yeah. And El Sabaoth, Sabaoth. Those words in the Greek, in the Hebrew, excuse me, when they translate into the Greek, they use Pentocrator. Let's look at these words briefly. The word El, almost every description of God is El, has El something, El Shaddai, El so on. And it means the same word, might, strength. Unrestricted power, absolute dominion. So when you see L, it is telling us God is all powerful, unrestricted power, full of might, absolute dominion. And then that dominion, that strength is backed up by another word that describes the character of God. Shaddai. All sufficient. That's what that word means. And the beautiful word picture, Hebrew 
places words, the pictures in, uh, in their words. You are supposed to think of something. The picture is of a nursing mother. Sufficient. She's all that baby needs, right? Don't need daddy. <laughs> Just needs mama. For nourishment, for cleanliness, for everything that baby needs. Comfort, El Shaddai. All sufficient. God is saying, I am sufficient for you. Not in a little way, but powerfully. El. I am powerfully sufficient for you. There's nothing else. There's no one else you need to look to for spiritual nourishment, spiritual food. I am it. That's why when Jesus said, I'm the bread of life, I'm the water of life. He is claiming El Shaddai. Sabaoth. Host. Army. He has dominion and power over all the armies, the heavenly armies, and guess what? The earthly armies. Now, we look at it and say, well, I I just don't see that. I don't see how when we have this terrible ISIS situation going on, how is God over those armies? I don't know, but I do know this. He is. He is over those armies. And you'd say the same thing if you were sitting under the power and dominion of Nebuchadnezzar. When he came in there, and he wasn't a nice king, he didn't come in and say, now, everyone give up and I'll take care of you. He did terrible things, as did all the other kings of those days. And it would be very easy to sit back and say, where is God in Babylon? Where is God in Egypt? When all these terrible things are going on. And God says, don't worry, stay put. I've got it under control. I am over those armies, and I'm using them right now for a purpose. And you can read through the Old Testament and New Testament, and God assures us that even when it doesn't look like it, he's taking care of it. This word almighty, when you hear it, means I can take care of you, and I have the power to back that up. I will take care of you. It's as if God speaks, interrupting this before John can get into his story, before God, John can tell his vision, before he can do that, he's saying, listen, don't forget this. As we enter into this, don't forget, I am your center. I am your focus. The world is in chaos, but it's not out of control. I am in control. I am El Shaddai. I am the Almighty. Verses 9 through 11, he answers some questions briefly. He answers them before we can ask them. And they are this, who, where, why, what, from, and to whom. And we're going to briefly answer those. Who, verse 9, first part of verse 9, he identifies himself for the second time. He says, I'm John. But this time he says, it gives a description of himself. He says, I am your brother and companion. This is who I am. Who are you, John? You know, we, we ask people, what do you do? And we're asking, who are you? And usually you tell them what kind of job you have or whatever. And here he says, I am John. And as John, I am your brother and I am your companion. He doesn't say, listen, I'm the last living apostle. I'm the last person who saw Jesus. There's no one else on this earth who actually saw Jesus. He could have claimed that. That would have been... Uh, He had bragging rights, right? But he didn't do that. He didn't say, you know, I'm the one whom Jesus loved. He could do that. He did. He did describe himself in John that way. 
But he said, listen, I'm your brother. I'm your companion. I have a close, I have a relationship with you. Brother, sister, you know, we, we, we throw that around sometimes. I hesitate. I, I rarely call a brother in Christ brother. And it's okay if you do. All right. You can do that if you want to. That's a personal thing. I, bear, I rarely call a sister in Christ sister. Hey, sister. Hey, brother. Because I've seen that used so many times that I forgot your name, so I'm going to call you brother. <laughs> and it's okay. I, I got over that embarrassment a long time ago, and I'll just say, uh, tell me your name again. <laughs> because I want to use your name. You're my brother, and I call my brother by, my, by his name. And I call my sister by his name. And if you want to call me Brother Alan, that's fine. I'm not fussing or hinting at anything. But it's okay. I mean, I, he says, I'm your brother. I have a close relationship with you. This is, this is our relationship. We're family here. And then he says, I'm also your partner, your companion. And the word actually means a joint participant. We share in something. We're sharing in something. What are we sharing in, John? What do we share together? And he names three things, suffering, kingdom, and patient endurance. I share in suffering with you. And that word means pressure, literally means pressure. I share, I'm under the pressure. I'm under the gun with you. I'm under pressure. We're in the cooker, the pressure cooker of life together. We're in the midst of this boiling pot, but we're in it together. We're not out right now, but that's where we are. We're suffering together. And I share in the kingdom. We're kingdom folks. We're, we're ruling under the ruler, as I showed last week. Or we're being ruled by the ruler. It could be that way, too. The Almighty. We are people who have a kingdom mindset. And we're going to emphasize that today. A kingdom mindset, a kingdom focus, a kingdom direction. Our call is a heavenly call. It's not an earthly call. We're not listening to the voice of the world. We're listening to the voice of God. We see others with kingdom eyes. We hear others with kingdom hearts. We live a kingdom life. That's who we are. And that's what we share in together. And then we do this with patient endurance. Some of your translations may not say patience because the word is only implied there. It's not there. Literally, this means a remaining under. We were remaining under something. We're bearing up something. The pressure, we're bearing it up. That's where the endurance is. And this word, interestingly, can be, also can mean remaining behind. And I'm going to look into this more as we get into Ephesus especially. Because I read that in Ephesus, they were in, under the pressure of the world in a way that we can't hardly imagine. And in that pressure in Ephesus, they did not run. They stayed behind. They remained behind. And I asked the question as I walked down the Ephesus road, why did they stay behind? Someone said, some writer said, they had no place to run. I'm saying, rubbish, there's a mountain right there. I was at the top of one of those mountains. It's hard to walk. I wouldn't want to have walked up there. You can get away, but they remain behind. Patient endurance. We will endure knowing we have all we need from El Shaddai. We'll rest in the might and the strength of God while the might and the strength of the world is against us. We'll rest in his might. Where? Verse 9. He's on the island of Patmos. 
This is where he physically was. That's a, that's a map of, of uh, Patmos. That's a scene from the island. Obviously, I didn't take that. Probably under, under, under banishment. And it says because he preached the word of God and he testified about Jesus. That could mean, and you can read it as you read it, it could mean in English, in Greek also, that he was there preaching and testifying. And that's why he went to Patmos. I actually heard one person say that, that he thinks he went there to preach. And that's why he was there. But from very, very early, about 40 years after this writing, early writers talked about him being on that island under banishment of Domitian, the emperor. And so the chances are very high, very likely that he was working there as a prisoner. What do you do with an 85-year-old man, you know, as a prisoner, 80, 90, whatever year old? There were salt mines there. Maybe he could bring water to the workers. Uh, I don't know. We don't know what he was doing there. But he was probably under banishment. So that's where he's located, on this island 40 miles off the coast, about uh, 40 miles, 50 miles from Ephesus. Now, what? I want to spend some time in the what. Verse 10, let's read it again because I struggle with this. Uh, I've actually struggled with it for months. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet. Isn't that amazing how that stopped me? And I'm thinking for a long time, what in the world? Some of you may say, well, Alan, you think too much. And that might be true. But I had a hard time wrapping my mind around two phrases here. On the Lord's day and in the spirit. And most people say, well, the Lord's day is Sunday. It means Sunday. And in the spirit means something like you're in this. He was in a state of spiritual ecstasy. Some spiritual something was going on. And I'm not going to say that those interpretations are wrong. I'm not saying that. There's not really enough information for us to make a good judgment or a, or a dogmatic judgment over what those words mean. So you can read it however you wish, but I'm going to give you my interpretation. I'm going to give you another option that took me a long time to come to. In fact, I shared this with Julia and Matthew. Friday morning, I woke up with this on my mind. And I got up and I wrote it down real quick. I was dreaming about this, so it must have been from the Lord. <laughs> no, I was just, just shows I was thinking about it. And maybe I was dreaming about it, but, but it, it flashed in my mind what I, what I think these words mean. And I could be absolutely wrong here. Let me give you a little background about what's going on. In the second century, this was written in the first century. In the second century, the Lord's Day did mean Sunday. You read some of the early writings in the second, third century, and they will refer to the Lord's Day being Sunday. Uh, a lot of people have it a hard time here because this is the only place this is used in the Bible that John uses it. And if John means Sunday, he was the very first person who came up with it. Or he was the first person who came up with this Lord's Day being Sunday. In the first century, as you read through the New Testament, he never, the Bible never calls Sunday Sunday. It never calls Sunday the Lord's Day. What do they call Sunday? First day of the week. All right. Every time they'll come up, it refers to this particular day. They'll call it the first day of the week. And so something has developed so much that it's become part of our culture that we accept it with hardly, with, without hardly thinking. It has become 
to mean a day that is especially set aside for Christians to worship. And some people, not in this group, but some traditions, Christian traditions, will even call it the Christian Sabbath. Have, we, have you heard that? The Christian Sabbath. So Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. And yet nowhere the Bible defines our day Sunday as a Sabbath or a day of worship. It never calls the first day of the week a day of worship. The Sun Jews had a special day. It was called the Sabbath, our Saturday. And the Christians adopted the first day of the week as their day, and we see this especially in the second century writings, as their day of worship. Notice what happens. Very quickly, this became, I don't want to use too strong of a word, it became or developed into, not only do we have a day of worship, but guess what else we have? We have an hour of worship. The hour of worship means there's a set time set by someone, not the scriptures, because the scriptures never do, set by someone that begins and ends worship. For us, 10, 15, we begins, and only the Lord knows <laughs> when it ends. I'm, I'm saying that seriously. <laughs> but some have taken that hour of worship. Okay, now, now see what we've done? We've, we've developed a tradition here. This is not the scriptures. We've developed a tradition that we have a day of worship. We have an hour of worship. That we do nothing in this particular hour that hasn't been authorized. Which sounds good. And I don't think we should be doing things that God doesn't want us to do. I'm not saying that. Until someone points out announcements aren't authorized. And I'm, I'm serious. I'm trying not to make. I'm not. I am not making fun of any church group. But this is true. This happens probably in our area. I don't know that for sure. But I know this happens. We have announcements. And someone says, well, announcements are not authorized. And we're in a time of worship. And so literally they will say. Before we begin our worship and have announcements, and then they'll say, now we will begin our worship. And anything else, they will end, if they do announcements afterwards, they will end worship. We we were in worship with a prayer, and then we will have the announcements. Because we don't want to do anything outside that hour of worship. Okay, and what I'm trying to show you is how how we, we accept things as true, and those things aren't in the Bible. One brother told me this week, he grew up in a church, he said, where you turn worship on and you turned it off. Sunday you turned it on and Monday you turned it off. And it caused him all sorts of problems and it causes people all sorts of problems, legalistic struggles, questions that we might not even should be answering. And the result of this is, to me, comes from designating Sunday as the worship day or the Lord's day. Now, if you're not upset with me yet, we got to go in the spirit. <laughs> Hang your hat on that. And again, this is this is just my sharing with you. And I could be totally wrong, but of course, probably not. 
But in the spirit, I'm going to get the other half, whoever's going to be upset with me today, I'm going to get the other half in the spirit. It means to some that this is a spiritual, special spiritual state that is not of the norm. This is an unusual and rare experience. And the, the questions that it, it causes me is, then how do I get in the spirit? How do I do this? What do I need to achieve? What do I need to do to achieve spiritual ecstasy? Is it something God just zaps me with or is it something I have to work myself up into? And if I finally get there, does that mean I'm more spiritual than you? Because obviously I've achieved something that you can't get to. Does God give me more insight when I'm in this special state? Do I have to be a super spiritual person? Or is it achieved by special meditation or special concentration? And is something wrong with me if I don't get there? That's what we get when we say this in the spirit is some spiritual uh, state that you have to get into. The problems is if the Lord's Day is a day of worship, then we can't worship or worship completely or we can only worship certain ways on an authorized day during an authorized time. And if in the spirit means a special state, a static state, then many of us are going to be disappointed and never having achieved this high spiritual state. Some will go as far as faking it because they see it happening. And I've got to do it, too. Now, I am not diminishing that the Lord was raised on Sunday. I'm not saying the church, early church, did not meet on the first day of the week. I always have to say what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we shouldn't assemble on the first day of the week. I think we should. I'm not saying, I'm not dismissing your emotions if you feel close and excited and, and have a, 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 an emotional response to the message or to prayer or to some other thing. But what I am saying is this, I'm not convinced that Sunday is the Lord's day. I'm saying Monday is as sacred unto the Lord as Tuesday and Wednesday and Sunday. For, every, for the Christian, every day is the Lord's day. In John's day, the emperor was to be served in worship. Life was centered around the Caesar. You walked the streets, you saw the centrality of the emperor. It was everywhere. It was displayed everywhere. There were statues. There were temples. You could not walk the streets of the cities without knowing that I'm here because of the emperor's good grace. You bought and you sold things based on your relationship to the emperor. In one sense, every day in the first century was Emperor Day. There was a day they called Emperor Day. And so this phrase on the Lord's Day can be translated literally in the Lord's Day. In the Lord's Day instead of on the Lord's Day. Hebrews 3 talks about today. The emphasis for the Christian today is the day. Today, if you hear his voice, not Sunday, not Monday, today, whatever today is, if you hear his voice. And he says, encourage one another, uh, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. It's called today when? Today. All right. And tomorrow will be called today. And yesterday was today. 
So wherever you are today, listen to his voice. Do what he says. You don't have to wait to Sunday to become a Christian. You can wait. That's fine. But you don't have to wait to Sunday to be baptized. If it's three o'clock Tuesday morning, that's the day today. Today, when you hear his voice, respond today. Don't wait till tomorrow. There's no tomorrow for the Christian. The point is the Christian is always today. We live in the Lord's day today. That's our isness. There's an isness about the Christian. The isness about God as he always is. The isness of Christians is today is the day. I live in the Lord's day. And so the spirit in the spirit. What is the meaning of that? The article the is not in the Greek. Literally, it means in spirit. The sentence could be translated. And the reason it's not is because it's so awkward in English. But it could be translated in the Lord's day. I was in spirit. But that's too awkward for us to put into a translation. But I think this is what he's saying. He says, this is the normal state of the Christian in spirit. We live in spirit state. We live in the reality of the spiritual life. You know what's real? The spirit is real. The spiritual life is real. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. All right. We sing those songs and we don't even know what we're singing. We're singing the reality of life. Capital L is spirit, not physical. And yet we get so wrapped up in the physical. We are not fooled by the world. We're not fooled by the material. This is our isness. We don't let the world distract us or we shouldn't let the world distract us. The Bible continues to encourage us to not we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're in Patmos. We're in Huntsville, but we're not of Huntsville. John was on Patmos. He was in Patmos, but he was not of Patmos. The reality is the spirit. We live by the spirit. We're in the spirit, through the spirit. We're involved the dwelling of the spirit. And it's not turned off and it's not turned on. It doesn't happen Sunday morning at a certain time. It happens Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. We're in the constant, the constant state of our life. We're all spirit filled. You know what a spirit filled Christian is? It's a Christian. I don't know of any other kind of Christian, but we use that term spirit filled saying you're in some kind of state. You are spirit filled. If you are a Christian, you are filled with the spirit. You're a spirit filled Christian. That's the only kind there is. And I think that's what John is saying. So my non dogmatic opinion is that John is contrasting life on Patmos saying this is not reality. The quarries that I'm being forced to work in, this is not reality. The suffering I'm enduring on this island, this is not reality. My true state, my true state is in the Lord's day in spirit. That's where I am every day. In the Lord's day in spirit. And so he's receptive to a vision. Not because he's worked himself to get receptive, but he's receptive because he's living in spirit in the Lord's day. And the Lord used him. From and to whom? A loud voice. We're going to discover later on this loud voice is from Jesus. He says it's like a trumpet. It's clear. It's strong. It catches your attention. Jesus is waking us up. There's a trumpet blast. He says, wake up. I have something to say to you. And then he names the seven churches. 
We'll go through them later. Ephesus, Pergamum, go down the hill, down the mountain to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and Laodicea. He names them in a certain order. And he says there are seven of them. And that means wholeness, completeness. This trumpet voice wasn't a blast to only seven churches. But it was to all the churches in that area. And that includes us. We, too, hear his voice, the trumpet voice, and blessed are those who hear it. Because I don't care how loud the voice is, I don't care how loud the trumpet is, if you're not listening, you're not going to hear it. John was on the island of Patmos, but that was not his reality. Every day he was at the bidding of the government of Rome. Working in the quarries, carrying produce, feeding the prisoners, watering them, whatever his task was, whatever his job was, that's what he did. But that wasn't his reality. His reality was in spirit. And his day was the Lord's. It wasn't Caesar's. It wasn't Caesar's day. It was the Lord's day. And I, as I thought about that, I thought of some of you. Some of you work very hard physically. Your hands are hard from work, physical work. You move things, you clean tables, you handle merchandise. You're on your feet a great deal of the time. Your coffee break seems short, and it's effort. It takes effort for you to get back to work. And you're on the job just like Pat John was on the island of Patmos. But that's not your reality. Many of you work in another field. I talked to several of you over the time, over time. And some of you have a great burden on your shoulders. You make, you make decisions, literally, that could get people killed or saved. You're making decisions that are life and death, protecting people in war zones. And beyond that, some of the decisions you make would cost, if you make the wrong decision, it's going to cost tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands. And some of you are going to come and say, no, millions. Yeah, I know. And so you have this weight of responsibility and a financial decision. Lives are on the line because what you do in front of that computer could save a life or lives could be lost depending on what you decided on the job. You're on the job, as John was on the island of Patmos. But what you need to realize is that's not your reality. That's not real. That's not reality. Yes, John did his best on the island of Patmos. And you do your best. I can go to other scriptures. Don't make decisions. Don't, work, don't, don't not work hard. Get in there. Do the work as unto the Lord, the Bible says. So I'm not diminishing the importance of your job, but I'm saying that's not real. Because later on, when we all, when God comes back and brings us back home, that's, that's not real. You are in the Spirit. You're in the Lord's day as you clean someone's table, as you handle an irate customer, as you make a decision on what to do with Whatever you're doing with rockets and ordinances and everything else that some of you do in important ways, 
You need to realize you're in spirit in the Lord's day right now. We're in Huntsville, but we're not of Huntsville. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're on our jobs, but we are not our jobs. Who you are is not determined by the work you do, but by whom or through whom you exist. We exist in the continuous isness of the Almighty, the one who sustains us, the one who nourishes us, the one who holds us. We live in the isness of the Spirit. We live in the isness of the Lord's day. Our lives are not wrapped up in our employment, but in the relationship that we have to the Almighty, who is, who was, and who is to come. Blessed are those who hear this word and take it to heart. Let's go out and live in the isness of God. Our elders are here. I took a little too long, but I went an extra verse. That's why. Our elders are going to come forward. They're going to receive anyone. Today is the day of salvation. Today. Don't put it off. If, if today is your day, make it your day. Today is the day for every Christian. Live that way in the isness of God. And if we can help you, come forward as we stand and as we sing.